thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to The Healthy Shift Worker with your host, Audra Starkey. Hello and welcome to the Healthy Shift Worker podcast. My name is Audra Starkey and I'm here to help you to manage some of the toughest challenges we face whilst working 24-7. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about one of my absolute favorite topics and that's chrononutrition. And this topic is so incredibly relevant to anyone working irregular hours because when we work 24-7, we tend to eat 24-7, which is not ideal as it can further exacerbate exacerbate disruption to our circadian rhythms or that sleep-wake cycle, you know, in conjunction with just the shift work itself. But to do this, we're going to be traveling all the way to the other side of the world to talk with a very special guest today, and that's Dr. John Johnson from the University of Surrey in the United Kingdom. John is a world-renowned expert and researcher in the field of nutrition and has successfully led uh, many projects studying links between circadian, metabolic and nutrition nutritional physiology, uh, things like um, timed meals on the circadian, on the human circadian system, the human skeletal muscle rhythms and time restricted feeding. So I'm really excited uh, to be talking with uh, John uh, this morning for you actually over there, John. So welcome, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so, so very much uh, for joining me, uh, John. As, as I kind of, um, you know, mentioned at the beginning, this subject is very close to my heart, uh, being an ex-shift worker myself and obviously working a lot with shift workers because, you know, they, they have that deleterious effects on our health in, in so many ways, as I'm sure that you can probably appreciate. Yes, yeah, it's a, it's a very topical uh, issue at the moment. I know there's a lot of research going on in Australia and around the world, Um on shift work and in particular how we can try and develop feeding patterns to to help people maintain their health while they're doing this work. Mm, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I guess to get started, uh, would you mind sharing a little about your background, John? I, I'm, I'm quite interested in how you actually stumbled into the field of chrononutrition. Yeah, well, it, it was stumbling really. Yeah. Uh, I did my first degree in, uh, in pharmacy uh, and I always thought I was going to be someone who was going to work in the drug industry, looking at drugs working on the brain. Uh, so I did a, a master's degree looking at uh, the type of drug that, that works and helps with anxiety. Uh, I then did a PhD looking at hormones in the brain in the context of seasonal biology. Uh, I carried on researching that for a few years after my PhD. Then I set up my own lab down at the University of Surrey, which is just outside London. And uh, at that point, I needed to do something a bit different. Uh, and we have a big nutrition group at Surrey. We have people who are interested in things like diabetes and obesity. Um, and we also have a really uh, fantastic center for studying human physiology and sleep and circadian rhythms and, and controlled lab conditions. So everything is kind of pointed naturally in the direction of starting to study human metabolism and how that's affected across the day. Um, and I think it's it's become so clear that this is now a really important topic within the field of chronobiology uh, and also within the field now of, of nutrition and, and diabetes research that uh, it became the obvious thing to do. 
Mm. Well, I, yeah, well, I definitely think yeah, the timing is is perfect because, yeah, they, the awareness is definitely starting to um, definitely get out there, uh, which is great to kind of, pardon the pun, shine the light on the, the plight of uh, the shift workers. That's, you know, that's for sure. So for our listeners, could you explain what exactly is chrononutrition or circadian metabolism? I mean, is it the same thing? Um, it's it's very similar. A lot of these terms kind of uh, overlap. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose my definition of chrononutrition is very simply the interaction between what we eat and when we eat. Um, mm. That's probably the simplest way of, of, of describing it. Uh, and we've known now for a number of decades that the way in which your body processes food depends upon what time of day you eat it. Um, so uh, researchers in Chicago and the States, but also uh, back where I am here in, in Surrey, have shown sort of in the 70s and the 80s that, that you've got a different way in which things like glucose and fat is absorbed from a meal uh, if you eat it during the day versus during the night. Uh, nowadays, because we have a much better understanding of the basic mechanism of how circadian systems work, a lot of us are now starting to revisit a lot of the old work uh, because we can actually, we've got the tools now to look at it in much more detail. Mm. All right. So what do you mean by the mechanism specifically? So we know now that we don't just have a single clock uh, in the body. Uh, We have a really complicated what we call a circadian system. And pretty much every single part of our body has its own clock or clocks Mm. within it. So we've got billions and billions of clocks within our body, all of which regulates local aspects of what that part of the body does and all of which will be talking to one another to try and maintain a kind of synchrony between these clocks. Um, So we know a lot more about where clocks are and we're starting to understand what these clocks do in different parts of the body. We also know a lot more about the, the, the genes that make up our clock system. So we have molecular tools which we can use to analyze what's happening across the day and possibly to target um, both in terms of time feeding but also uh, in some cases if you give certain drugs we have ways in which we can try and target that molecular system that builds up our our circadian clock. Mm, It's fascinating isn't it just to think that we really are walking clocks? Very much so yeah. Um, even if we're sitting down, we're still sitting clocks or, or whatever. It's, uh, we've got, we've, like, we've, it's, it's a really complicated system. We're only now starting to to understand the intricacies of it, but we, we've got a much, much better uh, understanding of, of, of what's going on in just a normal, healthy context. And, of course, now what we're trying to do is to work out how does that change when we go from a healthy context to uh, a less healthy situation. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess, too, that we would be very, you know, as human beings, we are diurnal creatures, meaning we're normally asleep during the night and awake during the day versus the, the nocturnal creatures. Based on the sort of studies that you've been doing, I'm sure that there are, the results are quite varied between humans and animals or similar. I don't know. Um, I think I think that the basic properties are, are pretty much the same. Okay. Um, so we've done studies where we've analysed basically every gene that's expressed in the tissue like like fat wow. or like skeletal muscle. Wow. And the number of genes that are, are going up and down 
across the day is pretty similar in humans compared to, say, mouse studies. Uh, the actual identity of some of those genes uh, turns out to be a little bit different, but the, the kind of processes that they control, again, are very, very similar. So yeah. it's in, in terms of the, the function of these tissues, uh, probably the best guess we have at the moment is that the, the functions that are changing across the day are similar in, in mice and men, but possibly different species have a slightly different way in which they control those processes. Right. From a functional point of view, it's, it's I think, pretty, very, very similar. Yeah, yeah, wow, wow. Well, shift workers, obviously our audience are all shift workers, um, so we all really wanted to, I guess, start sort of asking questions that are going to be very much relatable to them, but shift workers are definitely renowned for, you know, experiencing digestive complaints, and there is... A plethora of reasons behind that, you know, what they're eating is is definitely one of those. But how does eating during the night versus the day kind of thing affect our digestive function? So I suppose in in relatively simple terms, it's been well shown now by many research groups around the world that if you have an identical meal, if you eat that meal at night compared to, say, uh, in the afternoon or, or, or in the morning, you get a higher peak of sugar and fat in your blood after that meal, uh, and it takes longer for that peak to then be brought back down into, into normal uh, uh, kind of baseline uh, concentrations. And probably one of the main reasons for this is that people tend to lose sensitivity to insulin as you go from the morning into the afternoon, then into the night. Uh, And in fact, even in the late 1960s, people started to coin this term afternoon diabetes to reflect the fact that in the evening, uh, people tend to have less sensitivity to insulin than they do during the morning. There may well be other factors that are involved in that, but insulin sensitivity is probably one of the, if not the key factor involved. Mm. And... A part of that too could be the fact that the pancreas is not secreting that insulin uh, at the same capacity during, you know, two o'clock in the morning versus, you know, f- you know, four o'clock in the afternoon. Would that be right? Yeah, there's there's some evidence that you get a different amount of insulin that's secreted, mm. but I think the weights of the evidence suggest that's how different parts of your body respond to the insulin that's probably the biggest factor rather than the amount of insulin that's that's released mm. but it's it's certainly quite a complicated issue um but yeah i think insulin sensitivity is probably the the main thing to look at here mm. yeah wow i guess so there'll be some listeners that won't really know what insulin sensitivity is do you mind just i guess relaying that sort of in basic terms for us yeah, of course. So, so insulin is, is a very important hormone that it's, it's released after we have a meal. And really its main job is to help parts of the body, so the skeletal muscle, the liver, fat tissue, and it helps those tissues to take up particularly uh, sugar after we've eaten the meal. So you eat a meal, you get all this sugar uh, and other nutrients that are absorbed through the gut into the blood, and the body needs to then take that out of the blood and lock it away in different parts of the body. And that's pretty much what insulin does. So if you are less sensitive to insulin, you are then less effective at taking all those nutrients that you've absorbed from a meal 
taking it out of the blood and locking it away in your metabolic tissues. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. Yep. So how about the connection between uh, an increase in body fat for those that work during the night? Have you done much research on that or know much about the correlation between that? So I think one of the things to point out here is, as you, you touched on a few minutes ago, that shift workers or your listeners know is an incredibly complicated issue. Mm. Um, there are lots of different types of shift work, of course, mm. which may have different effects. Um, shift work is associated not just with the disruption of the, the, the circadian body clock system, but there are also things like sleep disruption in there. Uh, and we know that, for example, if you have a short sleep duration, that also affects your appetite, your choice of food, uh, and your metabolism as well. So although I personally studied this kind of question from mainly from a circadian perspective, um, it's, it's worth pointing out that there are things like sleep issues uh, and, and food choice and availability yeah. issues that yeah. are going to interact with it. So it's a really Absolutely. question. Absolutely, yeah. So I guess, though, but from a hormonal perspective, from circadian rhythms, yeah, I, I agree with you that yeah, we don't make the healthiest of choices at 2 o'clock in the morning um, yeah, because of that uh, disruption to, um, yeah, or food availability and so forth and those appetite-regulating hormones kind of go all uh, kind of skewed and and so forth. So is that, I guess, probably really comes down to the main driver behind that increase in body fat working during the night? To be honest, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying that one factor is more important than the other. And I'm not sure if anyone could really give you a definitive answer there. Um, but we know, for example, that if you eat a lot at night, then because of the way your body processes the food, the chances are you're likely to put on a bit of weight. Mm. Uh, we know that um, if you are sleep deprived, you tend to be more hungry uh, and you tend to crave energy dense foods, which are often the least healthy foods. Um, and I suppose depending on where you work, but in a lot of places like factories, of course, the canteens aren't going to be open during the night. Uh, so the, the choice of food available is likely to skew towards being kind of less healthy snacks, mm. particularly when people have to try and balance eating at work compared to perhaps eating uh, with their families as well. So it, it probably people are eating less healthily. There's a lot of recent debate in the literature about whether people eat more if they're on uh, if they're on shift work uh, and there's some evidence very recently to, to suggest that actually there's little difference in the amount people eat but possibly what they eat and definitely when they eat is, mm. is going to be the fact. Mm. So definitely, yeah, as, as you alluded to before, it's, it, it, it's important that people are, I guess, aware that it is yet not only what we're eating but also when we're eating and we need to kind of take in both accounts and at least I suppose having that awareness because uh, it all comes back to having that awareness so that you can then sort of look at making different food choices and 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 so forth and maybe uh, you know being a little bit more um, having that food available by bringing in you know from home will, will probably help with that. Yeah definitely and if, if we go back to this idea that 
you when you process a meal at night, you mm. have a higher concentration of sugar and fat mm. uh, in your blood. We know over long periods of time that high levels of sugar and fat in the blood uh, can predispose you to things like type 2 diabetes and the, the cardiovascular disease. Yeah. So if people are having this high concentration over a long period of time, you can easily see how that could very could uh, contribute to some of the health problems that, uh, that are reported in shift work. Mm, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So how does uh, the time-restricting feeding, for example, how would that sort of support with digestive health? Because I know here in Australia there was a there was actually a great study uh, that they done, that they did um, looking at eating food during night shift from a alertness perspective where whether it was having a main like a big meal uh, a small snack or not eating at all and then they put them in a driving simulator to test their alertness um, and they noticed that all the results basically came back that the small snack was definitely better because there was uh, you know less uh, they the Participants experienced less digestive stress, distress, sorry. Um, they were more alert uh, and, and so forth. So how or have you done much research when it comes to, yeah, perhaps not eating during the night versus eating during the day? I, I personally haven't really quite got onto that yet, but you're right that there are plenty of people around the world doing really great work in this area. Um, I suppose the first thing to say is, for us to define what you mean by time-restricted yeah. feeding, because there are lots of different but kind of similar and overlapping uh, feeding-fasting strategies. That mm. you use. Mm. So you've got things like intermittent fasting, you've got the 5-2 diet, uh, and then you've got what I would personally call time-restricted feeding or, or time-restricted eating, which has come out of a lot of animal work, uh, and a few of us are now starting to look at in, in humans as well. Uh, and so what I would refer to as time-restricted feeding is changing the, if you like, the, the window of feeding behavior every day. So what do I mean by that? Well, it's, the, if you like, the time, the duration between your first and your last calorie intake of the day. So between, if you like, your breakfast and your dinner. So if we, in animals, it's been suggested that if you reduce that duration, so you, you're eating over fewer hours every day, and then conversely you have a longer fasting period, then that can be very helpful for all sorts of different aspects of, uh, of your metabolic health. So far, there's very little data in humans uh, to, to back that up, but what has been published is broadly supportive that that strategy can help, but it's really early days, we've only been seeing really a few small-scale studies, hmm. um, but I'm sure over the next couple of years there's going to be a lot more on that. Um, so that, that's that's kind of one aspect of time-restricted feeding. The other aspect, which is possibly more relevant to, to shift work, is just looking at patterns of feeding when you have your meals. Uh, and one of the things which many of us in this field would ultimately like to be able to do is to say if a certain person works a certain shift pattern then this is the best time for them to eat their main meal and this is when they should be feeding and this is when they should be fasting mm. and possibly in the future this is the type of food that's best at this time of day that's the kind of thing we're working yeah. on but it's still quite early days 
Wow, that would be brilliant if, <laughs> if you could nail it down to something like that. I mean, obviously, logistically, also in the real world, that's going to get tricky for operational, uh, depending on the operation of the of the organisation and the availability of, of being able to give people breaks at certain time. But gee whiz, John, that would be that would be uh, amazing. To sort of be able, because that that way you'd be really looking at helping to mitigate a lot of these chronic health conditions that you know shift workers are renowned for. Exactly, yeah. And if we can do it at least in in part, if not mainly mm. by just changing foods, then of course we're, we're looking at, at drug free interventions, uh, and we're looking at just if you like tweaking what everybody does every day as a matter of course. So we're not hopefully going to be looking at big changes in people's lifestyle, asking people to take medication. We're simply asking them to change when and possibly what they eat at certain times of day, which hopefully is something that people will be able to, to stick to relatively easily. Mm. Oh, yeah, it's got to be uh, yeah achievable and practical and, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I suppose, yeah, the, the whole time-restricted feeding process you were saying by you know increasing that window where they're fasting longer it's just going to allow the the tiny you know cells that, and, and that line the actual gastrointestinal tract it actually is going to finally give them a, a much better chance to heal isn't it and, and regenerate and it, it just makes so much more sense rather than just be continually eating all the time because in the nutrition circle I think we've been given very uh, I, I don't know if misguided uh, misguided is the right word but when we hear that we should be eating every two to three hours to me that I that just never made sense <laughs> well it's certainly not something that if you like animals including humans are, are, have been designed to do yeah. We've been designed to have a, a kind of feeding fasting period yeah uh, and uh, one of the issues of this time restricted feeding uh, idea is actually what is it that we think is making animals certainly people hopefully more healthy when they follow this pattern is it because we are eating at a certain time or is it simply because we're having a longer fasting period every day uh, and there are certainly a number of researchers who study fasting as an entity in itself um, and so it, it's it's possible that the the length of the fast is just as important as our feeding time. But again, as yet, it's it's very early days, and I don't think we can really say whether it's one or the other or whether it's some combination of the two. Mm. Yeah, because Dr. Michael Mosley, who's over your way, uh, he's done a fair bit of research on this, hasn't he? Yes, yeah. Uh, so I've, I've, I met him for a TV program we did a few years ago where we put oh. him in one of our sleep labs and kept him awake for 24 hours. Oh. I, um, I, was, I was quite impressed he was able to do an interview after that because it's, it's, quite, it's quite tough going. But yeah, I think he is he's the guy who's often credited with this so-called 5-2 diet. Yeah. Uh, and I know he's very interested in, in, in feeding time as something which, which can help people. Yeah. Um, so he's, he's definitely spoken to a lot of key researchers around the world on, on, on this kind of topic. Yeah. Oh, I wonder if I actually saw that. Was that aired around the world where I think I remember seeing him doing some kind of experiment about that by, or by not sleeping well or trying different foods to help with sleep or maybe, yeah, that's something a bit different perhaps. 
I don't know. He's he's, he's quite famous for using himself as a guinea pig. In <laughs> so he locks himself away in all sorts of metabolic chambers and, and doing doing things. What we yeah we, we got him to to stay awake in what we call a constant routine, where this is a, a protocol we use to measure people's true internal circadian rhythms. Right. So if you stuck him away in a dark room for 24 hours without letting him sleep and took bits of blood out of him and, and that. We, and then we got him to eat a meal uh, in the morning versus the evening and measured his his uh, his metabolite levels afterwards just to, to, to show graphically that you get a higher peak in the evening than you do it in the morning. So uh, so yes, he's, he's aware of a lot of these things that we've been talking about because we, we actually put him through his paces uh, <laughs> when he did this program. <laughs> That's torture. Oh, what if he really knew what he was signing himself up for <laughs> when you were doing that? Oh, I'm, I'm sure we had all the ethics in place. So it's, <laughs> it's all, all perfectly fine in the both boards. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's funny. That's funny. Well, I guess um, one of probably my last questions, then, uh, John, would be what sort of advice would you give to our listeners uh, knowing what you know with all the research that you have done, are doing and continue to do, what would be, I get you, maybe your two or three tips or for advice for shift workers to kind of help to mitigate some of the chronic health conditions that we are is it's a fact unfortunately that we are you know renowned for developing things like yeah the type 2 diabetes obesity cardiovascular diseases and so forth so yeah would you yeah would you able to share it, uh, your sort of i guess top two or three recommendations just based on what you've what you've sort of studied over the years yeah, so I mean, just to start off with a slight caveat, uh, and that is that, of course, as there are different types of shift work, mm, it may well be true. that one, one bit of advice doesn't fit very true. a rotating shift uh, versus a constant or, or temporary night shift. But, so what, but what I'll say is just some general advice that hopefully helps mm. the vast majority of your listeners. So the first thing is in terms of food, because that's what we've been talking about, uh, try to minimize the amount of food that's eaten at night. Um, this will impact a little bit depending on sort of family commitments uh, and the type of shift that you work. But in general, try and consume as many of your calories during the daytime uh, as, as possible. And also try and maintain the sort of standard healthy eating guidelines uh, as well. So that's so in, in terms of food, there's, there's that, which I think is a, a, a pretty safe uh, and pretty solid piece of advice. The other one is, in terms of resetting your, uh, what we sometimes refer to as being the master clock within the brain, uh, exposure to light is, is a very, very important aspect of that. Uh, and so in general terms, you want to try and minimize your exposure, particularly to blue light uh, during the night time. Uh, and you can do this by, for example, you can wear certain blue filter glasses, which kind of look orange to you. And what they do is they allow most light through, but they, they take out blue light. And this is important for regulating your circadian system. But again, there's a slight caveat because blue light can affect things like alertness as well. So depending on the type of work, it's worth getting some specialist advice on what kind of light uh, therapy to have. 
But if you can essentially reduce exposure to, to blue lights during the nighttime and increase it during the daytime, that will help to reset your or maintain synchrony of your, of your master body clock to the normal light dark cycle. But again, I'll, I'll just say clearly, it's, it depends on the sort of work you're doing uh, and the sort of alertness that you need while you're at work. So that one, again, needs to be taken with a little bit of salt. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad that you mentioned that about resetting the circadian rhythms because I think it, it's, it's, it is one of the big focuses that I try to when I'm sort of talking you know, doing my own talks and, and, and so forth, because we, as shift workers, our, our circadian rhythms are all over the, all over the, the shop. And I think people kind of just experience, it's sort of expected is what it is. But because of that, I think we really need to be working with Mother Nature and working with the sun and ways to reset it as quickly as possible to help to kind of reduce those effects. And I get what you're saying about being alert during the night and that's not always going to be possible, but at least even on our days off, Doing those strategies is going to help to kind of reset those rhythms, reset the hormones, you know, reduce the cortisol, increase the melatonin at the right times, um, which I think, yeah, people kind of don't necessarily think about. Yes, and the, the, the whole question of, of resetting your your clock system is, is, is one that has been and continues to be uh, a, a big question within our fields. Uh, we've known for a long time that, that light exposure is the, the strongest way of resetting mm. uh, the main clock mm. uh, within the brain and also certain other rhythms in the body. But what uh, what my group has, has shown quite recently, for example, is that the timing of when you eat uh, is actually even more uh, of a strong time signal than light when it comes to certain rhythms of particularly metabolic rhythms within your body. So. When we understand this better, um, what we will hopefully be able to do is to use timed feeding as well as timed light exposure and perhaps timed melatonin supplements uh, to help shift and reset the whole clock system. Because it's clear that some parts of our system respond more strongly to some time cues and other parts of the system respond more strongly to different time cues such as feeding. Um, so. That's another way in which we can use this so-called chrononutrition uh, to help maximise our, our, our body health. Mm. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, the, the light is one obviously big thing that we, we certainly have control over, but the, the eating side of it is, yeah, people would never in a million years probably think of that the food can actually help to kind of reset your rhythms or make it work because I, I suppose like e eating at 4 o'clock in the morning is like, it's just like the light into your eyes signals the brain that it's daylight. Eating at four o'clock in the morning is doing the same kind of thing, isn't it? It's basically telling your um, your brain as well and your stomach that it's daylight, but it's not. Yeah, it's it's one of the problems of doing this, of course, is that in particularly when you, those of us who work with with human volunteers, is that the sorts of things that we want to measure. So, what's happening in your liver? In your pancreas, this is the tissue that makes uh, insulin, um, it's very difficult because clearly we can't just reach in and grab a bit of tissue out of one of our volunteers. There's no way in which we can do that. So we, we, we're kind of limited a little bit in, in what, we can, what we can measure. 
but what, what what we've shown, which agrees with what other people have shown as well, is that the way in which you you control uh, blood sugar, glucose uh, metabolism, seems to be particularly sensitive to the feeding time, whereas other metabolic rhythms seem to latch on much more to the light dark cycle than, than when you eat. So it's it's again. I know I've used this phrase before, but it's very early days. But we we know that that feeding time is important for certain rhythms. We just need to work out exactly what rhythms. Uh, we also need to work out how long it takes for these rhythms to reset to food. So the sorts of experiments that, that we do, we will, we will put people on a, a feeding schedule for you know, perhaps up to a week and then see what effect it has. Now, are those rhythms going to be changing after the first day or does it take multiple days to actually reset those rhythms? Uh, and that's particularly important for shift workers mm. um, because if they just have meals at a certain time of day for one or two days, is that actually going to affect them? Uh, or is that something which, if you like, your clock system can, can, can kind of ride and, and almost ignore and then go back to normal after that couple of days of shift work? Um, so the, these are ongoing questions. Um, and it, I'm, I'm deliberately trying to be a little bit cautious here because I don't want to give a definitive message when we don't have it. But I'm sure over the next few years, we're going to have much, much more information on these sorts of things. Uh, and we'll be able to update your listeners with, with much more specific advice on, on what can really help them in their day-to-day lives. Mm. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm always keen to sort of hear whenever there any research is being done on, on shift workers, that's, that's absolutely sure. And, and how it can be actually translated into their, into their real world, uh, working environment. So, uh, yeah. So what are you actually working on at the moment, John, in regards to your specific research? So at the moment, uh, we've just finished doing, um, laboratory studies, uh, with a group in Scotland and Aberdeen. Uh, and we're looking at uh, effects of, of, of meal time. The, there's an Aberdeen study which is looking at kind of long-term effects of, of morning versus evening food on, on body weight regulation and, and metabolic health. Uh, the study that we've done as part of that project is essentially to put people on a, a simulated jet lag uh, and to see how how long it takes for people's metabolic rhythms to reset to that jet lag. Um, intervention. So we've done our, our clinical work and we're just starting to analyze the data. So hopefully on more on that soon. Uh, we're looking at, at how food time uh, and, and metabolites within uh, within the blood are interrelated. Um, and we've, we've got some data which we're, we're writing up at the moment and we've got a new study that's going to start next year where we look at that in a little bit more detail. Uh, and then we've got some some other we've got a couple of PhD students who are looking at uh, time restricted feeding. So this idea of, of changing the, the duration between your first and your last calorie intake of the day. Uh, and we've got a couple of studies which have just started now uh, looking at that. Uh, and the idea there is we're going to build on the, the the very small preliminary studies that we've recently published to actually get a, a, a more comprehensive picture of whether this is something that might actually be useful for people in the real world. Mm, brilliant, brilliant. Well, I'll be keen to hear, uh, you know, what some of the outcomes that come of your research, that's for sure. And I suppose one thing that 
that I've kind of learnt over the years and I'm sure you've got a good appreciation for, John, is that the human body is an incredibly resilient (laughs) body that it can actually endure what it does, uh, you know, against its circadian rhythms. Oh, very much so, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, biology is, as I'm sure most of us would agree, is is a fascinating subject. Mm. That's the reason we we kind of get interested in uh, in research and in science like this, uh, yeah, there's there's almost an infinite amount of complexity for us to try and uh, work out and understand. Um, yeah, so it's it's so it's it, this this topic that we're we're talking about today is you know is is really a, a, a hot topic at the moment, uh, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of new data coming out soon. Uh, and so if we have this conversation again in a few years, hopefully we can really get down to some of the, the detail which we haven't quite been able to touch upon today yeah well i definitely am looking forward to it i remember when i was still at uh, university i was in my final year at clinic and back in 2016 and and sitting there and asking you know my clients you know what they were eating and but they were struggling with their weight and so forth and it wasn't until i started uh, you know looking and asking the question of when they were eating that things you know opened up a completely new world for me and then it's when I first came across the word chrononutrition uh, and it's oh it's just such a fascinating incredibly fascinating subject so I'm certainly grateful for yourself and your colleagues for doing all the research that you do in this area and I'm um, yeah I really look forward to hearing the results and and then you know sharing it with with our uh, listeners here because they This stuff is so, so incredibly important uh, when it comes to finding ways and strategies to help them to, you know, mitigate some of the poor health outcomes that they are renowned for, as I said before. But at the end of the day, we we desperately need shift workers. The world would come to a complete halt if we didn't have them. Uh, So we need to be doing whatever we can to to help them. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's been a great conversation. Uh, Jonathan, I really, really do appreciate you coming on today. I know that it's it's morning time for you over there in the United Kingdom kingdom uh, and uh, it's evening for me here but I, I as I said I, I, I really appreciate you as soon as I emailed you you were very responsive and, and happy to jump on the podcast so thank you so much for for joining me that's been a pleasure it's been yeah, lovely to talk to you Excellent. Fabulous. So if anybody actually is wanting to, uh, I guess, learn more a little bit about your research or maybe if there's anybody in the United Kingdom that wants to uh, perhaps become a part of studies working with you, how can they reach you, John? Where's the best okay, place? So, yeah. So contact, deals, uh, contact details rather, are basically on the, the university website. Um, so you can go to the University of Surrey and, and search for, for me, Jonathan Johnston, and you, you'll get to my page, uh, and that will tell you about a lot of what I'm doing and what I have done. Um, and uh, I'm pretty sure my, my email address will be on there as well if anyone needs to contact me. Uh, obviously, as I, I'm not a clinician, so I'll say up front that you know, I, I'll, be, I'll be reluctant to offer anyone sort of clinical advice. My standard response would be go and talk to your, your kind of family doctor about that. Um, but, you know, find a little bit about what I do and what my colleagues do and I think just in general if you want to find out what university researchers do there's there's usually information about us on our respective university uh, web pages. In terms of going for a study um, we're always um, keen to look for prospective uh, volunteers to help and that will go for anyone doing human research I think anywhere in the world whatever they happen to be studying 
Uh, a lot of our work we do at um, our fantastic clinical research centre at Surrey, uh, and they do a lot of the, the recruitment for us. Um, it, it varies depending on our study, who we're looking for, whether you're kind of young, old, um, lean, slightly overweight, shift worker or non-shift worker, <laughs> male or female. Yeah. But all that information will be there when we run the study. Um, the, the adverts will be going out. So you can you can get in touch with our clinical centre and other clinical centres and kind of put your name forward as someone who's interested. And then if you kind of match the criteria for a future study, I'm sure our respective centres will be very happy to contact you and see if you can participate. Great. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I know I've got a lot of uh, British and UK-based citizens that are listening. uh, That um, Yeah, I know I've got quite a few listeners over there, so I'm sure that there'll be, uh, you know, a few of them might be keen to partake in that or at least check out your uh, website and and see what you're up to. So, yeah, but again, thank you so much for joining me, John. Uh, As I said, it's been an absolute pleasure. I could, you know, talk to you for ages. I'd love to kind of really, you know, um, get inside your head (laughs) to have about two percent of what the knowledge that you've got there and um yeah because it's just such an important topic that i'm just so pleased to hear that it's gaining more and more research so yeah okay well yeah it's been fantastic to talk to you and and hopefully it's of interest and of use to your listeners brilliant excellent Alrighty, so that's it for another edition of the Healthy Shift Worker podcast. If you enjoyed the show, uh, please feel free to share it with other shift workers you think may benefit as this will help me to spread the Healthy Shift Worker message to shift workers and organisations all around the world. For anyone who may be new to the podcast, welcome. Uh, You may also uh, probably not know that I've recently published my first book titled Too Tired to Cook, The Shift Worker's Guide to Working and Surviving in a 24-7 World, which is now available through most online book retailers' worldwide including amazon and booktopia or you can go direct to my website and purchase it from there if you happen to live in my hometown of brisbane here in australia it is actually available from the beautiful river Bend's bookstore in balimba so thanks so much for tuning in and listening until next time may you continue to be as healthy as you possibly can be despite working 24 7 This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.